Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Conversation, a new podcast from The Spectator. I'm Oliver Wiseman, Deputy Editor of The Spectator World, and my guest this week is Elbridge Colby. Elbridge was a Pentagon official during the Trump administration and is the author of Strategy of Denial, a book in which he argues for a major rethink on defense policy given the scale of the China threat. Bridge, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Ollie. Okay, I, I want to start by um, asking you about about the big uh, geopolitical development that has happened since you, you wrote your book, namely the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, obviously. And I want to ask you about how that relates to America's policy on China. And, I, and I'm going to ask you that question by, by presenting two theories. Okay, so th- theory number one is Ukraine has demonstrated the you know, a surprising level of uh, determination and unity on the part of the West. And anyone who wants to kind of cause trouble anywhere in the world will will sort of take note and be more cautious uh, in the future. Theory number two, uh, Ukraine is a dangerous distraction for America and her allies from the real threat, which which is China. And, and so I'm just going to throw those two out there and ask you to tell me what you think about, about each of them uh, and where you think the truth lies. Well, I think uh, the truth lies much closer to number two, which is that the Ukraine war is abominable as, as, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been unjustified and so forth. It hasn't changed any of the factors that I use for my analysis in my book uh, or that the Pentagon used for its analysis in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. I mean, China is 10 times the size of Russia. Asia continues to be growing at a faster clip than Europe is a more important market area. So the priority should not have changed at all. And I, as I think you're alluding to, I wrote in a piece co-authored with uh, Oriana Mastro in February that there's a real risk of, of Ukraine becoming a distraction. And I think that is actually bearing out at this point. That is a very real dynamic. Um, I mean, it's hard to tell from the outside, not being privy to all the you know information, but that's a lot of what it's looking like. Why do I think that? Because look, I mean, as I said in the book, you know, the fundamental thing that matters is going to be hard power, when, especially when we're talking about issues of war and peace and China's decision calculus. There's a lot of triple bank shot logic that, you know, sort of Rube Goldberg, you know, incredibly Byzantine logic trains for how dealing with the Russians in Ukraine is supposed to determine China's uh, decision calculus about about Taiwan. But I find most of that either kind of fatuous or tendentious. Um, fatuous is a little strong. Uh, thin or tendentious, um, which is to say, I think, you know, look, I mean, the, the, the administration's political appointee intelligence chiefs, Bill Burns and Avril Haines, have both said that Russia, excuse me, that China has and Xi Jinping are continuing to aspire to bring Taiwan into the fold and, you know, are willing to think about military force and that the Davidson window exists, you know, before 2027 to move on them. Um, and so I think the biggest, the, the calculus, most reliable calculus for Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership is going to be whether they can succeed or not. And the problem here is that we know we're behind the curve and we know we're behind the curve and we've been behind the curve despite a lot of good rhetoric uh, in the Pacific over a Taiwan fight. And that hasn't changed and nothing about that has changed. Meantime, look, here's the issue. You know, Russian behavior is abominable. The Russians pose a serious threat. To European NATO, but it's the secondary theater for the Americans, and we have to focus where our, our contribution is most needed, which is in Asia. And the Europeans need to step up. And if you know, so so you know, you look at the last supplemental, 40 billion US dollars to Ukraine and other kind of related categories. Meantime, I think that was more than three times, at least at the time, three times the amount the Europeans were allocating <clears throat> uh, to Ukraine. That may have changed since then. But th- that's that can't be the model. The model, Ollie, has got to be that the Americans take the leading role in the Pacific 
and that we remain committed to NATO and engaged in NATO, but in a narrower way. I mean, I think it's still an, an important leadership role, but it's not this, you know, as one American politician put it, tripling down in Europe, not even just doubling down, tripling down in Europe. We don't have the military resources to do it, or that even if we increase defense spending. And what's happening, unfortunately, is that we are we may be enabling continued European free riding. There have been good signals like from the Germans, but there's very real questions about whether they're going to follow through on that. What we really need is for the Europeans to take primary responsibility for you know, conventional defense of the continent and supporting Ukraine and for the, the Americans to focus more on Asia. And that's not happening. And what, you know, just kind of final point, the Biden administration of all, you know, people and entities or whatever, I mean, they are sort of saying that it's one theater that we can, quote unquote, walk and chew gum at the same time, yet their defense budget is below the rate of inflation. And I mean, whenever people say, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time, which is a constant line you get out of the Pentagon, the State Department, which is China, walking or chewing gum? Like, I mean, the analogy I use is like China's like sprinting a marathon or like wrestling a bear. That, that would be like the order of magnitude analogy I would expect. It's definitely not walking or chewing gum. So, you know, at this point where I think we're kind of walking into disaster. So, so I mean, you hint, you hint at the administration's approach to this stuff. Secretary of State Blinken gave a speech a few weeks ago now, I guess, in which he, he, he more or less said that, you know, at least at least talks the right talk, in t- as, as you would see it, in terms of saying that the biggest, most serious threat to the, to the international order and to the US and so on is, is China, and that that hasn't changed regardless of what's happening in Europe. You know, what, what, what about that? What makes you... You know, why don't you believe him, I guess, is, is I guess one way of asking the question. Yeah, I for many, many, many reasons, mostly because of like reality and facts. I mean, Tony Blinken can give a speech. He's good at giving a speech. It said a lot of nice words. It was, by the way, it was the administration's speech. It was not a State Department speech. So it was not given by the president. It was given by the secretary of state. It had two paragraphs on the military balance in the Pacific. And in that context, you know, just to give you an example, the uh, right before he gave that speech, the administration hosted the ASEAN Regional Forum, I believe, or one of the ASEAN meetings. The big reveal in that speech was an, a, a sort of a development package of some kind that was for $150 million. So, I mean, it's not apples to apples, but like, you know, it's kind of order of magnitude, sort of an Austin Powers kind of scenario. $40 billion for Ukraine, $150 million for ASEAN. So that, you know, and we're, you know, the administration has said we're not going to get distracted, and yet there are more than a hundred thousand troops in Europe, and now they're signaling that that is going to be consistent, that that's going to be sustained. And yes, we don't need army soldiers for necessarily, although we might actually productively use army soldiers in a, in a Taiwan scenario. Uh, there are there are ways you could do that, but it's 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 the amount of resources, it's the money, it's the munitions, it's the defense industrial base. A lot of those systems, the javelins and, and others that, that we're giving to the Taiwanese, it may not necessarily be those systems themselves, but it could be the components that go into that or the, or the, uh, the prioritization on the production line. Uh, th- these things are ta- which take years to reconstitute. So, I, th- I mean, I just I mean, and generally speaking, I think that the, the, the reaction to Secretary Blinken's speech was kind of golf clap, but, you know, real skepticism about it really being underwritten by something particularly material. And I think the point is, is not to kind of pick at the administrations, enjoyable as that might be. It's within the bounds of, you know, the inertia and the past, there's a lot of good things happening in the Pentagon, from what I can tell. They are focused on China. Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall is doing a great job, from what I can see. General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. These are good things that are happening. But like, if we're actually about to get and potentially get into a war with another superpower, wouldn't you expect our national effort and sort of 
to be much different. Why isn't the president of the United States getting on national television saying, hey, I don't want to increase defense spending, but we're dealing with, you know, a potential superpower war and I'd rather spend a little bit now and avoid it later. And I'm going to do some controversial things. We're going to deploy conventionally armed ground launch missiles into Japan tomorrow, into the Philippines the day after tomorrow. Those would be the kind of things I would I would expect to see. But instead, we're seeing the Blinken speech. Secretary Austin was at Shangri-La, said a lot of you know positive sounding things. But I think we're way beyond where words really uh, are, are, are enough. Well, well, just to stick to words for a little longer, um, uh, Biden, uh, I think for, I don't know if it was the, it wasn't, the, certainly wasn't the first time. I forget if it was the second, third. I think or, it was the third time. Uh, um, t- time. He, he, he recently said, uh, basically, you know, the latest kind of step back from kind of strategic ambiguity over, over Taiwan and was more explicit about what, what America would do. And uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, you know, whether the, the, the wisdom of that approach, and then maybe we can talk about, you know, the wisdom of the actual substance of the question of, of Taiwan and, 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 and what, why America should be worried about it. Right. Well, I think our problem is not talk. Our problem is walk, you know, is our problem is that we're speaking loudly, but not carrying a big stick. So my view is that actually the formal pol- like the formal policy of strategic ambiguity, we should probably retain. Everybody in the U.S. government and, and I think U.S. political system should understand that we would fight to defend Taiwan, at least unless, I mean, if the Taiwans don't pull their weight over the coming years and China doesn't attack and it becomes manifestly indefensible, we'll have to reassess just as a matter of practical reality. But at this point, I think we and should understand as a practical matter that we would come to Taiwan's defense. The problem is not, Ali, that what we say, the problem is whether we can do it. And as I said, we're on a losing trajectory. And in fact, it's, it's, it's not only like a wash, it's actually, it's actually harmful to amp up our, our attachment to Taiwan if we're on a trajectory to lose, because that actually increases China's interest incentives to attack because they get to like blow up our credibility while doing so. So I think we've said plenty on on Taiwan at this point. I mean, I'm a lot of it's been good. I've tried to be positive about it. The real thing now is to make sure that we can do it, and that's where we're that's where we're way behind. And, and give okay, so give listeners a kind of um, a sense then of the of what that looks like. You know, what the things the things we should be doing that we're not doing um, in the kind of next year, next five years, next ten years. Look, I try to make this as simple as possible because it's look dealing with China is going to be a hugely complex macro problem. You know, but the key thing is to get like the basic military balance right. And I think you're you're Brit. Like, let's analogize it to 1940. Hugh Dowding said, you know, the Anglo-French, the Allied forces were completely defeated on the continent. They were facing the most powerful army known to Europe in probably over 100 years or what have you. But as Dowding said, my job here is not to win the whole war. My job here is to defeat the invasion. If we can defeat China's invasion of Taiwan and basically sink enough of their fleet and shoot down enough of their air armada, then that's going to be enough to keep it going, right? And that's that's what the strategy of denial is in the military context. So if we can get that relatively narrow and sort of, it seems sort of technical and arcane, if we can get that right, then we'll be in a position where ideally the Chinese will see that and never try. Or even if they do try, they'll kind of go back into their corner, but we'll be in a better position to negotiate all of the other issues. If we fail in that respect and China can project military power and seize and hold Taiwan's key territory, let alone the, that of the Philippines and others, it will become dominant in Asia. And then it will have a, a dominant geoeconomic position and we'll all be living in a, in a Chinese dominated world with enormous implications for our prosperity, our freedom, et cetera. I mean, what's happening in Australia is just a foretaste of, of what that might look like. What does that mean? A lot of it is frankly like munitions. It's more heavy bombers. It's more attack submarines. It's a different way for our ground forces to operate. 
Um, the problem is level of attention, time, prioritization. What the Marines are doing is a real model for this. I mean, really overhauling the Marine Corps, getting rid of stuff that isn't really relevant uh, you know, for this kind of fight, like tube artillery or a lot of their tanks, for instance. And there are arguments about specific puts and takes that I'm not the world's expert on, but basically adjusting our military forces for that. Now, there are limits to what we can do, even if we put more money against it because our defense industrial base is sort of atrophied, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But my point is, whatever possibly we can do, including by spending extra money, we should be doing in order to avoid the far worse outcome. And if we're pumping $40 billion into the Ukraine, if we're sending a lot of military capabilities in that direction, if a lot of the attention and political capital is going in that direction, you know, I'm not seeing it. What I would expect to see if we were really serious about this is this is like a presidential priority, you know, where it's like Joe Biden saying to AOC or whoever saying, look, I understand that you don't want to spend more on defense, but the alternative is we get crushed in a Taiwan fight. And by the way, who's going to own that? You know, I would, I would think almost just from self-preservation, the administration would want to spend more to, because, you know, there's this sort of like idea out there among particularly kind of defense, democratic defense elites that like, we're going to, capture technology and we're going to be sort of clever asymmetrically. And it's like, why are we so much smarter than the Chinese? I don't think we're smarter than the Chinese. Like they're going to capture technology gains too. They're going to act asymmetrically. They've been going after on to town on us asymmetrically for the last 20 years. So I think we're, there's no easy solutions. We're going to have to focus on the problem, prioritize it and make the changes that are necessary to avoid a, not only war, but probably defeat it at this, at this rate. And, and one of the um, kind of more eyebrow raising things you, you've been arguing is that the possibility of, you know, this potential conflict or some, some kind of military action on the part of the Chinese over Taiwan could be actually coming quite soon. Uh, that this isn't, this isn't a medium long-term thing, but, a, but potentially, you know, I mean, what, what, I don't know, you, you can get, you can put a time frame on it, but, but, why is that? I basically look at the Chinese situation as they, they have a will to do something on Taiwan. They have increasingly have a way. And then thirdly, they, they may have a sense of urgency about it. And, you know, if you look historically at why major wars have tended to happen, there's often those three factors. Because if you just have one and two, maybe you think, oh, I'll wait 30 years, 50 years, and I'll still have the, why, why upset the apple cart? But I think China does plausibly have a sense of urgency. I mean, look, Admiral Phil Davidson, then the commander of Indo-PACOM a little over a year ago, gave testimony and said there's what's now called the Davidson window, that China wants to have the ability to invade Taiwan by 2027. He was dismissed by a lot of people at the time. Now, you know, frankly, we burned a year, but now people are kind of coming around. Administration political appointees like Avril Haines and Bill Burns are saying, oh, yeah, there is an acute threat, and the the Davidson window is basically real. So, you know, again, there's critical time there. Why is that? I basically kind of break it down into three categories of why there might be urgency. You know, at one level, there's like the Xi Jinping personal explanation, which is like, you know, this guy, he's an aggressive guy, he's ambitious, and he's made Taiwan a clearly a very central issue. He talks about it as being critical to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. He's not going to live forever. He's about to get, quote unquote, elected to or appointed to a third term. Maybe this is his time to do it. Second reason is what you might call geo, geopolitical or geoeconomic which is the law. There are people out there arguing that China is about to go into like what Japan went into in the early nineties and a major economic slowdown, demographic problems. So if it's, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's feeling its oats right now, why wait until they're running into all of these other problems, maybe to distract from them, maybe to help resolve some of them. I personally am a little skeptical of that one because it doesn't seem to me that Chinese economy long-term relatively speaking is going to do that poorly. And people who are make a lot more money than I do in investing seem to still be putting money in there. Could be true though. The one I find the most disturbing is what I, what I think of as the military balance one, 
which is that the Chinese have been investing in a Taiwan fight for 25 years. They've been laser focused on it. They've played catch up. You know, they can they can spend more efficiently than we can, partially because they steal, steal our technology and our know-how. Meantime, we've been doing a million different things, and we've only kind of gotten focused on Taiwan the last few years. So China's going to have a force that's potentially going to be able to do the job in this decade. Meantime, a lot of the sort of new stuff that we're excited about won't come into the force until after 2030. So if you're China and you say, well, I, could, I have a real good chance of, of, of resolving this issue to, in my favor in this decade, but if I wait, I'm going to lose it, well... If you're thinking rationally, you say, okay, maybe I should roll the dice here. So th- those those three factors together, you know, I mean, they're, they're all kind of, I think, pointing in the same direction. And I think, you know, if, if you're saying, okay, well, if I'm, if I'm China and I'm going to roll the dice before 2027, well, then is there a time before 2027 that might be better? And by the way, if I'm going to roll the dice and I'm going to, you know, the cosmic roll of the dice on Taiwan and I'm going to get sanctioned, all that stuff. Maybe I should like put a gun to the Philippines head at the same time and say, hey, you know, disaffiliate from the U.S. alliance. Why? Because like if you're going to pay, why not get more benefit while you're doing it? Because it's not like the incremental harm from threatening the Philippines is going to result in so much of a greater response than if we if they just confine it to Taiwan. And that's kind of what worries me. Or, you know, the other I say this to Japanese audiences a lot. You know, maybe China's, you know, they've been, I mean, they're patting themselves on the back for talking about increasing defense spending over the next five years as if that's like meaningful. It's crazy. Um, Maybe China does this and then says to Japan, if you increase defense spending as a result of this, we will regard that as a hostile act. You know, I mean, I don't think that would be crazy. So that's the kind of like, I mean, just when you kind of posit these things and then you think about what you would do if you were China, it's pretty, it's pretty worrying. Obviously, the obviously the logic of your argument is that you know you have to um, you have to kind of really up the ante in order to avoid ideally avoid you know avoid uh, conflict and and have a kind of detente from a position of, of strength exactly. right with China. Right. I guess some people listening to you would would say, well, it sounds like if we up the ante tomorrow, that would that would that could have sort of destabilizing effects in and of itself, and, and maybe we're just too far maybe maybe we're just too far behind the curve, and that we have to just. There, there isn't an option that is, you know, U.S. supremacy plus peace with China um, and I choose peace kind of thing. You're exactly right. We only have bad options right now. Like, that's why I was pushing this in the Pentagon five years ago or four, not five years ago now was so that we could try to get ahead of the curve. So you wouldn't have this bad choice. Right. Because right now we face the choice between trying to strengthen our position and possibly provoking the Chinese, both in some kind of meta political context, but also they might say, Oh, the Americans are finally getting religion, really? So let's move, right? That's a problem. The other, but like, you know, you're going to die, or we know we're going to lose the other way, which is like, oh, we don't do anything, or we don't do anything material. And then either the Chinese eventually do it and win, or everybody sees what's happening and they say, well, I guess I have to cut a deal with China because the Americans aren't really making an effort. So to me, we are stuck with, with option A. The question then is how to massage it. Um, and this is, uh, this is a more tactical question that I'm just, I mean, given that I'm on the outside and so forth, I think it's not something I can productively comment that much on. I mean, I am, I am conscious of the fact that like, I am, I'm talking about our vulnerability, but like the nature of our political system and that of most of our key allies is you have to make this argument in an open and compelling way. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things about the administration that, that, that I do find frustrating on this front is like when I was out at the Reagan forum back in December, you know, and Secretary Austin gave this, you know, we don't need to basically kind of like reassurance speech as if like, hey, we're, we'll be fine. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't, that doesn't work. Like Ronald Reagan, I mean, that's a, I mean, 
I'm not the, I, I'm a huge fan of Ronald Reagan, but I'm not like an unadulterated <laughs> worshiper of Ronald Reagan. But like, you know, he said there's a bear in the woods. The Soviets are really dangerous and we're going to get stronger. And here's why. Here's what we're going to do. You know, here's why that makes sense. That's the kind of conversation we should be having. So have the Secretary of Defense instead of saying, hey, everything's going to be OK. We're America. We're going to come up with new technology. Say, OK, here's our problem. Here's specifically what we need. Here's the investments we need. This, we're going to need more money. Look, I, my own personal view is I'd rather spend something close to what we spend on defense today and just make hard choices within the defense program. But if we're not going to do that for political reasons or industrial-based reasons, then we got to spend more. We should spend it smartly, but I think we got then we got to spend more, but we should spend it on the things that we actually need. I mean, the problem is, you know, you got a lot of Republicans out there should double defense spending, which I honestly just find kind of like unconvincing and not really dealing with the strategic reality which is, and I mean, not to mention the macroeconomic reality, I don't see the American people jonesing to have a doubling of defense spending. But I think we should spend enough to, to make sure that we can get this problem right, but we should spend as, hum, as little as humanly possible. And, you know, but that requires understanding what we need and, 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 there, and also like really coming down hard on people who are wasting it. You know, so people who are saying that let's double the defense budget, but also let's, du- you know, spend, do more things in Europe, they're not helping. We should be saying, we got to focus, and with what we have left, maybe we can help in other theaters. But we really got to get this right first. You brought up Europe again, and let's go back to the kind of that side of things uh, and how it relates to the China question. You know, what, one thing I, I guess people would would have said to you, you know, would say to you, I'm sure they do say to you, is, you know, this is this is all the same fight in the sense that uh, we're in a new Cold War, and you know, look at the look at the joint declaration between Russia and China during the Winter Olympics. You know, the, these guys are allies. And, you know, the rules may be reversed somewhat uh, in terms of who's the uh, sort of senior party this time. But, you know, these are these are the same fight and we cannot separate one from the other. So to be weak in Ukraine is to be weak against China, ultimately. Uh, what, 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 yeah, I found this argument totally unconvincing. It, it's, it's not a coincidence that's usually made by either Europeans or people who want us to continue to play a big role in Europe and the Middle East. I mean, it doesn't I mean, first of all, in the Cold War, we did make. An alliance with the junior power. So by that, if we were going to call it a new Cold War, are they saying that we should make a deal with Putin? Is that what they're saying? It also doesn't like, it's this very ineffable kind of, I think I'm using that word correctly, triple bank shot kind of logic about how Xi Jinping is going to see the resolve of the Western. By the way, like, I don't know what the West is as a geopolitical entity. I know what the West is as a cultural entity, you know, but like, it's not a geopolitical entity. There's NATO, there's US alliances. You know, those are things that exist. I don't know what this West thing is basically, but you know, I mean, I, if I'm right that the main driver of the decision of China's decision whether to, you know, attack and how well we will do in it is the military balance, then we should think in hard, concrete military terms, you know, and that means prioritizing uh, the decisive theater. I mean, if anything, I think what's going on is could make an invasion by China more likely because China is probably seeing that we're distracted. So, and by the way, I mean, a lot of that stuff doesn't make sense because the Europeans naturally are the ones who are most concerned about Ukraine. I mean, we're now seeing, I mean, there's an article by Ed Wong in the New York Times about this. Unsurprisingly, India, ASEAN, Brazil, Indonesia, or it's in ASEAN, you know, other South Africa are not getting in on the sanctions, right? Because the people who care most about Europe are Europe, right? Okay. By the way, if the Europeans are going to take so much of a hit to decouple from Russia, that's probably going to make them less likely to do that vis-a-vis China. The countries that are going to be most concerned about China, as the Indians have pointed out, rightly, are the Asian countries, right? So let's focus where, where, we, where we need to focus. 
And I, I actually think this argument is going to age very, very poorly, honestly, because to me, it's just it's a transparent rationalization for doing stuff in Europe. But I think I think it's going to age very poorly because the scarcity is going to become more and more manifest. And probably when there's another supplemental up on the Congress, it's going to become more more clear. I mean, just how much money we're spending. I mean, that $40 billion, I mean, they're going to need to come for another supplemental, I think, this summer, it sounds like. I mean, that's a lot of money. Well, so one of the lessons from your from your book and, and, and generally what kind of argument you're out there making is that, you know, the, the details of kind of military hardware and so on and so forth really matter in, in, in geopolitics, right? And that, you know, you can chin, stroke your chin at uh, Brookings, but you do actually need to know, like, how a tank, like what kind of tank can destroy some other kind of tank. We don't even know. Probably, you need to appreciate that it's important. Yeah, you need, you yeah, need I, to appreciate that. But, uh, and so, so on that, well, I mean, one of the interesting things I think about the, about the, the war in Ukraine is the gap between, you know, intelligence got some things right, right? Like they, they saw it coming, but, but everyone was, turns out everyone was way too scared about the Russian army. You know, the Russian army was, can do, can do dreadful things. And, but, but it wasn't this, um, you know, it's it's failed to sort of sweep through Eastern Europe in the way we were told it would if it wanted to. And um, I wondered if that gives you any pause. For some, I mean, I wondered how you think about, you know, whether in terms of China, whether that changes anything. It, could the same be true of China? Are they completely different powers? You know, how has that affected your kind of thoughts on, on this sort of bigger threat? Yeah, no, thanks. A couple of things. I mean, just on the basic point, I mean, I really think that some of these it's not military arcana, but if military affairs are, you know, look, power comes out of the barrel of a gun. I'm a realist. So is Mao, I guess, in this respect, at least, you know, if, if war is the ultimate court of arbitration in the international system, well, then who's better at war makes a big difference, right? I mean, and we have this idea, naturally, people tend to think big geopolitical things only happen through some huge, you know, kind of cataclysmic conflict. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, Going back to the 1940 example, I mean, the Germans were able to defeat the Western allies in 1940 through kind of, you know, the way they used military forces. You know, they had some luck, but they also had this concept of blitzkrieg and how to, you know, combine it. And and I'm not the world's expert far from it on that, but that had a dramatic impact on the geopolitical situation. Now it got turned around in the end at a huge cost. But I mean, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about where, and, and then the fact that the Brits were able to resist invasion was partially because, well, Churchill didn't send, first of all, he would, I think he didn't send those critical spitfires and hurricanes, you know, when it became clear that the battle of France was going to be lost. And he had not sent air cover or aircraft to the Malay Peninsula, which had a huge result in the, in the local fight, but he withheld them because it aircraft were critical. It was like, and again, it was like, it wasn't the home guard. It wasn't the British army that won the Battle of Britain, it was the Royal Air Force and the Navy and radar and intelligence and these kinds of things that, that they're really, but, you know, without that, for want of a shoe, the kingdom was lost, right? I mean, for, you know, maybe if they'd had 20% fewer Spitfires and Hurricanes, I don't know, it might've been different, right? And, and, the, and, the, and they might, and the Luftwaffe might've gained air superiority and the Germans might've been able to cross the channel unopposed. And then it would have been curtains for Britain and the world would be a very different place. That's the kind of the, the logic I'm thinking about, or, or the, take the take the 1967 war, where dramatic success by the Israelis led to huge political outcomes. So that's the kind of point I'm making. In terms of the Russians, a few thoughts. I mean, <clears throat> one, certainly I would have expected the Russians to have performed better earlier on. Now, I will say that they seem to have kind of gone back to the basics over the last couple of weeks. They're focusing more where their advantages are, where, you know, where they enjoy more local superiority. 
they're just bludgeoning the Ukrainians, it sounds like, with, with artillery and so forth and, and making the best of that situation. So I, I don't think we should count the Russians out. But they have performed less than we I mean, I, the, the, the fear was never that the Russians would be able to march all the way to the, the English Channel like in 1982 or something. They would have culminated somewhere in Eastern Europe, even if they attacked NATO. But they performed less well than that. What does that make me think about the Chinese? Well, it makes me think maybe they're less formidable than I appreciated. The way I think about the Chinese is they're not 10 feet tall, but they're probably seven feet tall. But the thing about the Chinese is, A, they're probably learning to. B, Huangdi has a quality all its own. They have 1.4 billion people. They have an enormous economy. They're facing a small island that's 100 miles from their coast. Taiwan's not, I don't know, it's not clear that Taiwan's Ukraine, right? So there are other factors that could go in the other direction. And if I'm China, I'm saying to myself, what's the lesson? Don't mess around bring absolutely decisive dominating force early in the campaign and leave nothing to chance. Um, and by the way, look, I mean, I'm not, and I'm, you know, I didn't serve in the military, so I'm not, I'm not like Sergeant Slaughter or something like that, to, to, but I would just say as a, as a thinking of this from a strategic perspective, I don't think we should take the idea that Western forces necessarily would perform so much better. Right. In the sense that like, there was a lot of discussion about this bridge crossing sort of catastrophe for the Russians, but a friend of mine, a uh, very serious ground forces analyst named Dave Johnson, the Rand Corporation, he pointed out that was just standard, you know, river crossing doctrine that apparently the American military would also use. It's not clear how we would do. By the way, we would probably run through a lot of our munitions very quickly. So I, you know, like, yeah, there, there are problems and, and you know, we, we should look to exploit them, but I would, I feel much more comfortable if our defense establishment, I, I, I call it like the Tom Brady analogy, Tom Brady didn't win eight, 10 Super Bowls, whatever it was, by being like, we're unbeatable. Nobody can contest us. He won 10 Super Bowls by saying, we got to bring our A game every year. And that's sort of, and not assume that whoever, the St. Louis Rams or whatever, are, you know, incompetent. You, you mentioned that the R word and call yourself a realist that I'm going to, I'm going to bring up, you know, the, a name synonymous with realism, which is Henry Kissinger, who I think turned 99 this week or last week or something. He made a deal with somebody to have exceptionally long life, sort of a Faustian kind of agreement, I think. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, he, he made headlines recently basically calling for um, the, the, the West, to, or, you know, I forget exactly how he phrased it, but essentially that the goal should be peace in Ukraine on, on the status quo anti-borders, meaning parts of eastern Ukraine were under proxy Russian control uh, and the fighting stopped. And he got a lot of very, very harsh uh, blowback uh, on both sides of the Atlantic for that. And I just wondered how, I wondered what you thought of that policy objective. And I wondered what you thought about what the reaction told us about the kind of debate over Ukraine and, and stuff at the moment. Well, I think a negotiated settlement is absolutely the realistic goal. I mean, what exactly the parameters of that, I don't know. And I think we should support the Ukrainians to the extent that they can maximize their advantages. I mean, my, my partner and, and, uh, Wes Mitchell has written about about what this might look like, and I'm very, I think, is convinced by that. But yeah, I mean, I think something. I mean, and I think to your second point, I mean, Kissinger is mixed bag. He's some things he says are right, some some are terrible, and even by his own logic. But but I think basically thinking about a negotiated end of this conflict is definitely what, where we need to be thinking. And in fact, I, I think Zelensky was basically saying something not dissimilar. So, but to your point, this says something very bad about the state of the strategic discussion in Europe and, and among the blob in, in Washington, which is, you know, I mean, the common idea that there needs to be some kind of decisive victory against Russia that will completely like solve the problem. 
And that's just not going to happen. I mean, Russia is a, I mean, as Kissinger, I think, pointed out, Russia's, what, 140 million people, puts a lot of military effort into the military. It's a reality that has to be, that has to be dealt with. So whether Putin is humiliated or not, I don't know. It's like an instrumental concern. Um, but I think we're going to have to, our strategy is going to have to deal with the fact that Russia is going to be around. And I mean, frankly, ultimately, we, we do want to separate the Russians from the Chinese. Now, that's unlikely to happen while there's a war going on, for sure, and probably as long as Vladimir Putin is around. But, you know, Khrushchev was overthrown, basically, and, you know, that changed the course of Soviet foreign policy. So I think what we want, and actually I saw there was a piece in the Telegraph by the former uh, head of the uh, general uh, commander of the British Army kind of pointing out, like, what's our strategy here? Our strategy here should be actually be somewhat similar, which should be to distance Russia from um, from from China and uh, while protecting NATO security. Now, I, I think as Wes has, has argued persuasively to me over the over the last years, that may require Russia actually being to some extent, if not humiliated, then at least knock down a peg. So that's not it doesn't mean we just do whatever the Russians want. I think that's that's not we've cl- clearly found that that doesn't work. Um, but what I do think we want is a strategy that allows us, to, the Americans in particular, to focus on on China. And, you know, while we may never have a full like rapprochement with Russia, we may not need that. But the, the danger here, Ali, is like, so for instance, we've been talking about the Taiwan attack. Well, you know, Russia's really in China's pocket at this point. So, I mean, none of the arguments about their being too aligned actually change the need to focus on Asia. If anything, they probably make it greater that we need to be clear in our heads about prioritizing it. Because now if the Chinese go, Xi Jinping's going to have a lot of capital to say to Vladimir Putin, you got to help me out now, buddy. So I want you to create trouble in Europe. And if we don't have it straight in our heads where our priorities are, we're going to screw up. And the priorities got to be got to be Asia. And we, if we have to pull stuff out of Europe, absolutely, we should do it. If we have to withhold stuff from the defense of Europe, that's what we got to do. And I think we should be clear to the Europeans about that. I'm certainly being clear to the Europeans about that. I don't think the administration is being sufficiently clear about that. But that's, I think, the strategy that we need to have. Meanwhile, the the Biden administration seems to be the strategy appears to be, and tell me if I'm wrong, appears to be sort of best case scenario, full full defeat of Putin in Europe, whilst taking you know the China threat as seriously as anyone could humanly take it, whilst also not spending anything more than we currently do on on defense. Is that is that an unfair way of putting it? Or? That would probably be how they would put it. I mean... But the, but sorry, but the unspoken part of my question is, which is obviously unrealistic, right? I mean, that's well, not yeah. Gonna I mean, I think, like, I think they, I mean, my critique of them probably at its core is that they underappreciate the, the, the centrality of hard power. And that's certainly true of someone like Blinken. But I even like a Jake Sullivan, I mean, he wrote a piece in Foreign Policy with Hal Brands a couple years ago, kind of, it's a global competition of institutions and norms and like, no, not really. Like, can you win the war? You know, if, if it escalates up to that point, who's, who's going to win that? And if they, you know, I mean, what's kind of paradoxical is they're, they're, they're pretty hot rhetoric on China, but there's not a lot of behind it. And so, I mean, they could, they could hold the current defense spending level and ruthlessly prioritize, but they're not doing that. They're increasing spending. They're increasing our effort in, in Europe. So I just like, I don't, actually kind of don't get it. Like that's, that's kind of where I am. I mean, like I, I actually just don't understand because I, they clearly know that China is a major threat. Like that, that's one thing that's been interesting is I don't think those guys ran in 2020 with the idea of like, let's prioritize China. Let's take a confrontational approach toward China. I think they wanted to have a different approach. 
But I think what's happened is that they got in there and they saw, you know, and I haven't seen it, but like the intelligence, what's happening out in the world. And they like Blinken and Sullivan, they, they, they were like, wow, like it, this is incontrovertible. That's why I don't give them too much credit for prioritizing China because it's like so obvious now that you'd have to be like willfully obtuse not to do that. Um, but I think so, so, so they kind of, they kind of get that, but then they don't, they don't have this, they, they don't sufficiently or, or, you know, they, you know, they're, they're talking a lot about the Taiwan thing. They were leaking to Bloomberg, uh, I think today or yesterday that like, they're worried about Taiwan, that, that, that China is talking about the Taiwan Strait as, as national waters. And they're worried about the potential for an attack. Okay. So if you're worried about a potential for an attack, like in the near term, but a, you don't increase spending. And that's, I just keep going back to that because that's the most obvious one for someone outside of the system to look at. But also like, yeah, they, they're increasing the, the, the purchase of certain kinds of munitions, but they're not like, hey, we're going to pay somebody $100 billion to build a whole new set of factories that will enable us to do it. They're doing stuff that's within the realm of you know, inertia. And it's like, well, I, I think inertia means that we lose. I think that's what that means. I mean, that was the whole point, like what we were trying to do in the 2018 National Defense Strategy. And, and, and there were certainly... We could have done, in the Trump administration, could have done a much better job in actually implementing it, 100%. I concede that point. But, like, the whole point was we can't keep going on with this kind of inertia thing, you know, within the existing boundaries. But that seems to be where we're going. You give nice speeches and you talk about the, you know, Indo-Pacific and shared values. And meantime, the Chinese are boom, 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 boom. And then one day they're like, okay, today we have 80% certainty, Mr. Chairman, I think you're, I think it's time it's time to go, and we there might not even be a war because the the Chinese might tell the Taiwans you're going to get you're just definitely going to get crushed, and the Americans can't save you, so just give up. That's the that's the win without fighting that people talk about. That's 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 a very real potential if we continue on our current course. Well, Bridge, I think that's a appropriately gloomy uh, note on which to it is, draw it things is, to a close. It is rectifiable. It is we can fix this problem with will and focus. But we cannot, sorry, Ali, just last point. We, and this is Republicans too. In fact, Republicans in some ways are even being worse in the last couple of months. We cannot delude ourselves that we can keep doing everything, that we can keep acting as if it's 1999. It ain't. We're dealing with a superpower for the first time in our history as an international power, and we got to act accordingly. And that means changes for, for, from our fundamental change in our behavior, and we have to grapple with that. Okay, Bridge, well, uh, thought-provoking stuff as always. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.